Uh, if you weren't here last week, um, I wasn't either. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm glad to be back with you this morning in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we'll be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in Mark 9, uh, verses 30 through 50. We're going to look at, at quite a, a big chunk here uh, today. And, and if you were here last week, you're probably a bit confused because um, we looked at Mark 9, 30 through 37, actually through, I think, 41 last week. And uh, you might be saying, well, Jordan, you were sick. Are you still sick? Are you all there? Um, did you not get the memo? Um, no, I, I, I'm aware um, we're, going to, we're going to be looking uh, at this passage um, again from last week and then um, look at, at what comes next. And, and the reason is, is because at least to me, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but at least to me, this passage or this section of, of Mark is really hard for me to grasp. I really struggle to find uh, some sort of continuity between all of these different short stories that we find in Mark 9, 30 through 50, uh, through the end of the chapter here. And so this week as I was studying, as I was looking at this passage, um, I, I realized that, that I was probably a little bit too close to the text, and so what was probably the best thing for me uh, was to actually step back and just look at the flow of Mark 9 as a whole. Maybe you can relate to, to the following. A couple weeks ago, my family and I, we went uh, down to, to central Iowa for a few days. We went to visit my sister and her family. Uh, they were in central Iowa. Uh, they're normally in the Chicago area. My brother-in-law is a pastor, and so uh, that doesn't work well for seeing each other or traveling on the weekends. Um, so they were close, so we decided to head down uh, that way. On our way home, we were uh, taking I-35 back north, and we were going to take the Highway 20 exit um, get, and head west toward Fort Dodge. Um, and uh, it's a drive that I've made dozens of times. It's a drive I could probably, but have never tried doing in my sleep. Um, and, and as we're going north, we're getting north of Story City. We're getting close to Highway 20. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, there's this car in front of me that has a particularly interesting custom license plate. And I could not figure out what it said. I could not figure out what it meant. And so I was zeroed in on this license plate. And I was trying to figure it out, and I'm running through my head all of these different options. Well, does it mean this? Does it mean that? No, that can't be it. That can't be it. I have no idea what the actual license plate said. I've already forgotten that. I do remember, however, that I was so focused on that that I missed my turn. And somewhere close to, to Mason City, I realized, hey, we've been going far, a lot further north than we normally do. And so I decided to, to, to check, <laughs> check my phone, and, and yeah, we were, we were way off track. Um, the kids didn't really care. Crystal was a little frustrated about that. But the, the reason why I bring that up is because I was so focused on, I was so focused on the minutia, I was in the weeds, that I actually missed the big picture. And to use some language uh, from uh, commercial airlines, I think uh, what's helpful for us as we look at this text is, is really just to, to go back to cruising altitude, so, to get a 10,000-foot overview of this passage to see what exactly Jesus is, is trying to teach us. And that means, of course, we're not going to hit all the details in these verses. We're not going to uh, spend a, a lot of time looking at each verse individually, but I hope that we give ourselves a better understanding of this picture of Jesus as he is on his way to the cross. Last week, as Pastor Kurt began uh, his time, he began by looking forward. He said that we're about to enter this section uh, of specific teaching uh, uh, from Jesus on specific topics. And, and that's absolutely true. And, and I think what's, what's helpful for us is not just to look forward at what's to come, but also to look backward and say, okay, where have we been? And, and how does that help us understand why Jesus is teaching what he is teaching? 
So about a month and a half ago, as we came back to the Gospel of Mark, we had taken a break for the summer. We picked up in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, in this healing of a, a blind man. And, and Mark 8, 22 is the beginning of a new section in the Gospel of Mark. It's commonly known as the way. It's, it's Mark's section called the way. And, and it's all about what does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus, of following Jesus. And it's called the way because it's, it's taking place as Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. There's this transition up to, from Mark 1, verse 1, all the way to Mark 8, 21. There is this focus on Jesus' healing, on Jesus' miracles, Jesus' power, Jesus' authority. And then we see this transition. Jesus now is on the way to Jerusalem. And what's more, if you are familiar with your Bible trivia, before Christianity was called Christianity, it was actually in the book of Acts called The Way, which is actually a, a really accurate perfectly fitting description of the Christian life. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He is on the way to the cross. And here in Mark, from Mark 8, 22 to the end of, of Mark 10, Jesus takes a significant chunk of time to teach his disciples, for those who are following him on the way, how they should be his disciples. This is the way of the, of the Messiah of the Christ, of God's promised King. The reality is each of us is a follower, a follower of some way in our life, whether we admit it or not. The question, of course, is not if you're following a way, it is what way, what road are you following? Are you following the way of the Messiah, this road that Jesus says, anyone can follow me on? But if anyone would follow me, at the end of that road is a cross. Are you on the way of the Messiah? Are you on the same road or path that Jesus is? One thing that becomes abundantly clear in the gospel of Mark is that there are really only two ways in this world. There is the way of the Messiah and there is the way of the world. There's no middle ground. There is no such thing as neutrality with Jesus. Yes, followers of Jesus, followers of the way of the Messiah may look different. They may have different theological emphases and conviction. Do we baptize infants or do we only baptize believers? How frequent should we practice communion? What does the Bible say about predestination and free will? All of these things are, are questions that, that will lead to different answers from followers of the way of the Messiah, and yet we all follow the same way. Similarly, followers of the way of the world, they may look different. Some are not at all concerned with morality, and some, like the Pharisees from that passage for our memory verse this week, are deeply concerned with at least looking moral. Some people love money. Some people don't care about it at all. Some people love sports. Some people love work. Some people love looking happy and pursuing all of these things that make them feel good. And, and frankly, if we're honest, some people just like being upset. All of these things look different, and yet at the end of the day, they follow the same way, the way of the world. And so with that in mind, with these two ways before us, and each of us is on some way, we are on one road, on one path, that's going to be our approach to this passage this morning. The question that each of us must wrestle with as we open our Bibles is simply this. Am I following the way of the Messiah, or am I following the way of the world? Am I following the way of the Messiah, of Jesus, 
or am I following the way of the world? And when I say that, I don't mean have I professed the faith in Jesus. I mean, if you look at your life, look at Monday at 9.45 in the morning, look at Tuesday night at the dinner table, look at Friday night, look at your Saturday, does that declare that you are a follower of the way of the Messiah, or are you following the way of the world? Is your life marked by the Messiah, or are you unknowingly following the world? So let's jump into our text Look at these verses this morning. What we're going to see is that there are five markers. Each of these different stories gives us a different way to understand and discern the direction of our own lives, of what way, what path, what road we are on. And so as we approach this passage, let's pause for a moment of prayer. Please pray with me. Father, as we begin this morning, we first say thank you for your word. I'm reminded anew of how great a privilege it is to have a God who speaks, a God who reveals himself through his word in a way that we can grasp, that the incomprehensible God has made a way for us to comprehend him in part. God, it is absolutely stunning the thought that we would be able to, in a way, with this passage, walk with Jesus as he walks to the cross thousands of years ago. And so, Father, as we set forth on this task this morning, we just, uh, as we desire to walk with Jesus, as we desire to follow Jesus, follow in his footsteps, we ask for your help. God, we rejoice that you delight to make yourself known to us, and so we ask you to speak. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First, we'll start with Mark 9, 30 through 32. This is the second of three predictions Jesus makes about his coming crucifixion in the gospel of Mark. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. What is the way of the Messiah? Well, Jesus tells us here, the way of the Messiah first declares that there is no glory without a cross. There is no glory without a cross. This is true for Jesus, and this is true for anyone who would follow Jesus as the Messiah. There will be glory. There will be exaltation. There will be a beautiful reward, yes, but a cross must come first. And we saw this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. A few moments ago, I mentioned that this was the second of three passion predictions, three predictions of Jesus' death from Jesus. The first is in Mark 8, verse 31, where Jesus says uh, basically the exact same thing. He says, hey, you know what? I am going to Jerusalem, and I am going to be killed, but I will rise again. Jesus essentially says, I am the Messiah, but I am going to a cross. And then after that, he essentially says, almost right afterward, if anyone would follow me as the Messiah, they must also go to the cross. That's the key focus or thrust of Mark 8, 34 through 38, to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus. Jesus and his disciples have left the Mount of Transfiguration. Now they're making their way back to Galilee. They're slowly, purposely headed toward Jerusalem. This is where Jesus will be crucified. And on the way there, Jesus takes time not to teach the crowds, but to teach his disciples about what is to come. 
consider just three truths about Jesus' message, Jesus' teaching during this time, specifically focusing on the necessity of the cross for the Messiah. All of it's found in verse 31. First, in verse 31, it tells us that the Messiah's cross is necessary. The text tells us that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Of all three passion predictions of Jesus' death, this phrase is unique to this verse. Jesus is not saying that the Jewish leaders are responsible for his death. He's not saying it is the Gentile authorities who carry out the crucifixion. He says humanity in general is guilty of the crucifixion. All of us is guilty. And in God's plan to rescue humanity, is not just focusing on one segment of humanity that needs a Savior. He is looking toward everyone because Jesus has been handed into the hands of men. All men. Second, in verse 31 as well, the text tells us that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. Literally, it's saying that the Messiah will be handed over to humanity. Now, here's the question. Who will be the one handing Jesus over? It can't be the Jews because they're part of of humanity. They're part of the hands of men. So who is handing Jesus over to be crucified? It is God the Father. The Father's plan from the very beginning includes a cross for his Son. And as we will soon see, the same is true for us. I think it was Martin Luther who once said, God has one son without, no, without sin, but no sons without crosses. All of us must pick up a cross. The Father's plan for his perfect son, Jesus, included a cross. It wasn't a cosmic accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't proof that God is wrong. It is something that God had planned from the very beginning. And if you follow the Messiah, if you follow in the way of the Messiah, the same is true for you. It is not a mistake. It isn't proof that God doesn't exist. It isn't evidence that God has abandoned you when you face suffering and hardship. If you are walking in the way of the Messiah, then you will go to a cross just like your Messiah. That is your Father's plan. Third, also from verse 31, At the end, we see the cross is not the final word. Glory awaits. The cross is a part of God's plan, but so also is a crown for his son. And the same is true for all of his sons and daughters. As we're going to see in the next passage, the next few verses, there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to be great. The problem is, is how we pursue that greatness. So often we refuse the way of the Messiah for the way of the world to avoid the cross. We, we want glory, but we do not want the cross. And the way of the Messiah tells us something completely different, that there is no glory without first a cross. Let's continue in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve 
And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. These verses show us the second marker of the way of the Messiah. The way of the Messiah is the way of service. These verses, at least in my opinion, are some of the most awful in the entire Bible. And I don't mean that like they shouldn't be in the Bible, but as I read them, I think they portray this picture of the ugliness of the human heart more than any other picture in the Bible. The the ugliness of my own heart is on full display in this passage. Let me explain. Verse 33 It tells us that Jesus and his disciples arrive in Capernaum and then they go into this house. It's probably Peter's home. Once they're inside, Jesus asks them, what were you discussing on the way? Notice the phrase here, the way. Now what does on the way refer to? Again, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. And as he has been on the way, he has been teaching his disciples about what is to come. This is a reference back to verse 30. Jesus and his disciples are on their way, and what is Jesus doing on the way? He's teaching them. He's teaching his disciples, not just once, but time and time and time again over the course of this journey that he is going to the cross. And he's sharing this part of his father's plan, and he's patient, and he's loving, and this is a heart-wrenching moment for Jesus to tell his disciples that he is going to a cross, and it is just on the horizon, that he is setting his face toward Jerusalem, to borrow language from the Gospel of Luke. Mark doesn't tell us how long they journeyed to Capernaum. It could have been a week, it could have been a month, it could have been longer. Jesus is intentional that he is taking this time to teach his disciples on the way about the cross. However long it is, Jesus is focusing on this one fact, that is, he's going to die for his disciples. And the whole time that Jesus is talking about his death for humanity, for his disciples, what are his disciples doing? They're fighting. They're arguing. They're jockeying for positions of grandeur in in Jesus' kingdom. On the one hand, we have this king who is preparing to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order to save all of humanity that would believe in him. And on the other hand, we have these same disciples. They're not even paying attention because they're too busy arguing with one another on how to stroke their own ego. Is there a greater picture showing the difference of the way of the Messiah and the way of the world? The way of the Messiah leads to service, it leads to dying to self, but the way of the Lord does all it can, no matter how many enemies we may make along the way, no matter how many throats we step on to look after number one, to exalt ourselves over other people. And here's the thing, the quest for greatness is not inherently wrong. That's at least part of Jesus' motivation for going to the cross, Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Why does Jesus endure the cross? It's because of the joy that is set before him. What is that joy that is before him? It is the glory that he will receive for being obedient to his father's plan to be exalted above every name that is named. Pursuing greatness isn't inherently wrong. Jesus says as much in verse 35. If you want to be first, he doesn't say, hey, you shouldn't even want to be first. He says, if you want to be first, and then he explains how to do that. What is wrong is that we all too often define greatness with the exact same definition that the world uses. Not, a way, not according to the way of the Messiah, not according to how Jesus sets an example for us, but instead by tearing others down so that we can be first. Jesus uses this illustration of children here. There's another illustration, another passage, I think, that describes the, the greatness that Jesus is describing, Philippians chapter 2. Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here, Jesus gives us a picture of true greatness, and that is simply laying down your life for others. The way of the Messiah is the way of true greatness, and it is the way of service. You know what comes right after those verses in Philippians chapter 2? It's greatness. That Jesus is exalted, that Jesus is the Lord of the entire universe, but that only comes after sacrifice and humility and a cross. As I said earlier, is there a bigger juxtaposition between the, the way of the Messiah and the way of the world than what we see in these verses? The way of the world says you have to take because if you don't, you will lose out. The way the Messiah says you give freely, but even give of yourself freely. The way of the world says it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. If you don't take care of yourself, no one else will. The, Messiah, the way of the Messiah says that you are in your Father's hand, and you don't have to worry about a single thing because your Father loves you, and your Father will hold you fast so you can give of yourself freely, lavishly, fully in the service of others. Our hearts are drawn to the way of the world, not the way of the Messiah. But here's a crystallizing question. So important for me when I, when I frame it this way based off of this text. Would you rather be great in God's eyes or great in the world's eyes? Put it another way. Would, would you rather be great like the world or great like Jesus? That's what this passage is providing for us, that question. The way of the Messiah is the way of service. Everyone pursues greatness. What path are you on? Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
Now, for some reason, perhaps Jesus is saying here, in my name, in verse 37, is jogs John's mind. Perhaps that's it. John decides, whatever the reason, that now is a good time to bring up that they've been trying to silence others who are doing stuff in Jesus' name because they aren't following them. Now, this is not following Jesus. It's following them, the, the disciples. It's implied in this text that the man is not failing at this exorcism. If he was, there wouldn't be any need to stop him because he's, he's not doing anything anyway. Verse 39, Jesus says the fact that this man is successful is, is probably pretty good evidence that he is a believer. Notice the emphasis is not just on the exorcism, it's that the exorcism is done in my name. The heart of these verses is verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. Here's the third marker for the way of the Messiah. The way of the Messiah is at war with Satan, not with one another. It's at war with Satan, not with one another. This man gets that the enemy is Satan and that Jesus' kingdom is breaking into his grip on the world. Other Christians are going to do it differently than us. They're not the enemy. And if you are truly a follower of the way of the Messiah, Jesus says, you've got to stop the friendly fire. Our pastor Kurt did a, an excellent job last week in these verses kind of describing um, or qualifying this. There are two ditches that, are, that we have to be aware of. On, on one side is this danger of, of rejecting every single person who is even just slightly different than us. The other danger, of course, is, is accepting everyone, no matter what they believe, no matter how anti-gospel their beliefs may be, no matter what they may deny in their beliefs. And if, we want, if you want some guidance on that, uh, the sermon is online. I encourage you to, to check it out from last week. What I want to draw your attention to is verse 41. In verse 41, you, you see... We've been talking about this battle. Our, our battle is against the enemy of our souls. And it's important to see that just as we should not be elevating our group over one another, there, there's also the, this recognition that anything that we do for Jesus' kingdom is, is valuable. Just like we shouldn't elevate our group over one another, we also shouldn't elevate our role over others here, according to Jesus. Jesus says, this man who has been casting out demons in my name, he's doing a mighty work in my name. But you know what? Even if you do something as simple as giving a cold drink of water, actually it doesn't even say cold, give you a cup of water because of my name, not, not the exact words, but the intent is there, then even that person is with me. Our culture finds everything to divide upon. Politics, sports teams, there's a right or wrong answer there. Financial status, we, we have every excuse to divide these days. This past week, many of you know I like riding my bike. I was distraught to find out that this coming summer, apparently I have to choose between two different types of rides. Uh, Ragbri or a new week-long ride that's taking place the exact same week. Our culture so often takes things like this and then casts them into a moral decision where you are morally wrong if you choose one way or the other. I just want to ride my bike. Just want to eat pie. We, we, we divide so often in our culture. And the reality is, I don't, I don't think it's ever going to get better in the world. I don't think we're going to, to come along one another, alongside one another. I, call me a pessimist. I don't think the world's ever going to get any better. 
but the church has to be better. The church must be better. Jesus says that the way of the Messiah unites in the war against the enemy of our souls. But not just uniting, not just unity for his sake, we unite around the name of Jesus and the way of the Messiah. Let's keep moving. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if, you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled with two, than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here Jesus transitions to another key piece of teaching on the way of the Messiah, and it is this. The way of the Messiah is not just at war with Satan, it's also at war with our sinful desires. This is a very sobering passage here. It's a, it's a giant warning about what will happen if we don't follow the way of the Messiah. If we don't follow Mark 8, verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we decide to ignore that, if we decide to, to minimize that, if we decide to just shrug or delight in our sinful tendency as the world is so prone to do, Jesus gives us the result right here. Jesus warns us of two dangers. Let's look at each of them in turn. First, first is in verse 42. This is our responsibility toward others. Jesus warns us against causing other Christians to stumble. This term, little ones, is almost certainly just referring to all Christians, not just children here. The word here in Greek is to stumble. And this is a word I'm, I'm quite familiar with because I have a one-year-old who wakes up every night at 3 a.m., two other children who are inconsistent in putting their toys away. And because sometimes I struggle with insomnia, if I'm exposed to too much night, a light in the middle of the night, I try to do everything I can in the middle of the night in the dark. And you can see where this is going, right? The, the picture of, a stumbling, of stumbling is like this half-asleep dad who's in the middle of the night. He's not expecting that toy in the middle of the living room with all the lights off in the middle of the night. And somehow he doesn't wake up the entire house when he steps on a Lego. And that's exactly what Jesus has in mind. Well, that's no, not, not exactly what Jesus Legos weren't there. I think that's kind of what Jesus is talking about when he talks here about uh, stumbling. This idea of stumbling over objects that we are not aware of. My kids cause me to stumble multiple times a week. Take that however you want. To use this image, Jesus urges all of us to do whatever we can in order to, to make sure there aren't any objects out there for people to stumble over because if we do, an incomprehensible, awful, incomprehensibly awful judgment is coming. Jesus tells us that if we cause a Christian to stumble, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a massive stone, or at least 100 pounds weighed, weighing over 100 pounds wrapped around your neck. Why? Because death by drowning is far preferable than the response of judgment that God will bring for those who live a life that leads other people into sin and judgment. A horrific death once is far better than eternal death. 
Have you ever considered your responsibility toward other Christians in this light? When you stumble into sin, are you not causing others to stumble into sin? When you hold a grudge or, or hold on to resentment, are you not giving implicit endorsement to those who notice that they can have that same attitude as you? God will hold you accountable for the ways that you influence his sons and daughters, both for the good, but also for the bad. The second danger is not just focused on on causing others to stumble, but, but compromising with our own sinful desires in our own hearts. And Jesus gives this very graphic imagery of self-mutilation to communicate his point. Do whatever is necessary to take care of the issue of sin in your life. As awful as it would be to not have your hand, it would be far better for you to lose your hand if it is causing you to sin than being thrown in hell. Jesus is certainly using hyperbole here, but that doesn't mean he's exaggerating the awfulness of the horrors of hell. If anything, he's understating the case. He's using hyperbole because human language is failing him. It fails to communicate the awfulness of what awaits those who don't walk in the way of the Messiah, but instead gratify their sinful desires. And so Jesus calls those who would follow him to deny themselves, to pick up their cross and follow him, to deal with the source of sin immediately and in the most serious way. There is nothing too serious in the battle against our sinful natures. The way of the Messiah is a way of war, one with our sinful desires. This passage closes with two verses that are called by many commentators uh, some of the hardest verses to understand in the entire Bible, which makes you feel really good, right? There are many different interpretations of these two verses, verse 49 and 50. Um, recognizing that, I'm, I'm going to try to give what I think is, is the best way to understand these verses, but, but I, I say so, just wanted to, to posture that in humility because other people will say different things. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, what's immediately evident from this verse is the rep- of these two verses is the repetition of salt, right? And it's connected to the previous passage by this mention of fire. Fire is mentioned in verse 48, and then we have fire here in verse 49. This concluding charge, be at peace with one another, ties back to uh, some other parts of our passage the squabbling of the disciples in 33 through 37, the the tendency of the disciples to uh, squelch the ministry of other people in 38 through 41. So it's it's tied in some way to the rest of our passage, at least by word association. But what about thematically? How does this fit in? I want to say that this passage kind of just sums up what we've looked at so far. These two verses sum up. 38 through 50, and it sums it up this way. The way of the Messiah is for those who follow their master. The way of the Messiah is for those who follow their master. Let's consider this in three ways. First in verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now this verse builds on what has come before. That's evident because the word for points forward, or backward rather, it's further explaining something that has already been said. The question is, what is it explaining? 
What is Jesus trying to explain with this phrase? Some would say that it focuses on the reference to hell in verse 48. After all, fire 49, fire verse 48. And that's certainly possible. But that doesn't make sense of the word salt, and we would expect if it's going to further explain something about hell and judgment, it would actually, you know, explain something about hell and judgment, which it doesn't. So that brings us to a, another option, a second option. It's not a further explanation of judgment. It is instead, uh, it, it's, a, a, res, uh, it's a, ch- a charge to Jesus' disciples, who are the everyone here, to do whatever it takes to put to death the sinful nature in their hearts. Jesus is essentially saying, do whatever is necessary to kill sin in your life, be wholly committed to me in the way of the Messiah. That doesn't really seem to fit or connect either, is it? Or does it? And the key is to recognize that salt and fire are mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament. They describe this Old Testament practice that has to do with sacrificial offerings. Many times a sacrificial offering, when they, these offerings that were consumed by fire, they would not be accepted unless they were offered with salt. These offerings, if they were offered without salt, it was unacceptable to God because salt was actually a symbol of purification, And so in that case, it seems like Jesus, right after he has just said, do whatever it takes to put to death a sinful nature, and he says, for everyone will be salted with fire, he's essentially saying, for everyone who follows me must be a spiritual sacrifice. He's essentially saying exactly what Paul says in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Jesus is is concluding this section on the way of the Messiah by reminding his disciples that there is no place for neutrality with him. You can't be a half-hearted follower of Jesus. You must be a living sacrifice. You must be salted with fire like the offerings of the Old Testament. To follow Jesus is to follow him wholeheartedly, even in the midst of the fires of affliction, whether they are real or metaphorical. To follow the the way of the Messiah is to follow your master. And that means following your master no matter the cost, no matter the hardship, no matter the suffering, because as we saw at the beginning of this section, there is no glory without a cross. So that's the first way Jesus kind of sums up this passage here. Second way is found in the first half of verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now, this one's a bit easier to understand. In the first century, salt wasn't as pure as it is today. Oftentimes, it came from the Dead Sea, and it came with impurities like gypsum, which if you want to know what that is, it's, it's part of the ingredients for drywall oftentimes. So it was actually possible for the salt itself, the sodium chloride, to fall away from the salt and be left with nothing that was of value. And Jesus is saying here, he's using salt to refer to his disciples, and he's essentially saying, if you who are my disciples lose the essential character that makes you my disciples, what hope do you have? To use the language of the Gospel of Luke, what value do you bring to the world? If you who are my disciples lose the essential character that makes you a disciple, what value do you bring to the world? And of course, the question is, what is the essential character that makes someone Jesus' disciple? According to our passage this morning, it is following him 
on the way of the Messiah. It is following him to the cross, first and foremost, for your own salvation. It is following him in self-sacrificial service. It is following him in pursuing uh, peace with, with other Christians while waging war against the enemy. It is waging war against the sinful nature within you. That is what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means for salt to be salty, according to this passage. Now, here's the severe warning Jesus issues. A disciple who is not living like a disciple is not a disciple, is what he is claiming here. The way of the Messiah is to follow your master. Look at the last part of this, the end of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus closes this passage by addressing the issue that started all the way back in 33 through 37. Do you want to stop squabbling with one another? Do you want to live at peace with other Christians, even if they think differently than you? Do you want to just stop pursuing your own exaltation? Do you want to just be content with the station of life that God has called you to, no matter how great it may seem, no matter how, how seemingly insignificant it may be? Do you want to stop jockeying with others for positions of greatness? And here at the end of verse 50, Jesus tells us the key, and the key is to be salty. In other words, it is to be a disciple. The key to unity in the church Disciples being disciples, all following the way of the Messiah. And so as we close, consider your life and ask yourself, am I following the way of the Messiah or the way of the world? All too often the allure of the world is great and we can default to that mindset and to that type of living and Jesus directs everything in these verses to his 12 disciples. He's not talking to people who aren't following him. He's talking about those who are, who are closest to him. Those who, who walked with Jesus struggled with this and needed a reminder, how much more do we? You see, the way of the Messiah declares that there is no glory without a cross, that there is no way to, to pursue greatness without humbling yourself and pursuing service. The way of the Messiah pursues unity, but not just unity for unity's sake, unity around Christ and his way. The way of the Messiah is at war with our sinful desires. And let's be a people that no matter how painful puts to death the sinful nature, dies to self to serve others, who look at hardship knowing that there is glory coming on the other side. Let's be a people who plain and simply just follow their master. Are you following the way of the Messiah or the way of the world? Let's pray. Jesus, we do ask you for grace as we seek to follow you. I pray that first and foremost, that as we desire to, to follow you, to be more like you, to, to follow in your footsteps, we would first and foremost recognize that, that salvation is a, is a free gift. It's a gift freely offered to us that has been won by your death on the cross. That we don't have to earn salvation through suffering, but we do follow you. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would strengthen us and enable us to follow you well. Help us to 
turn from the way of the world and follow you on the way of the Messiah. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.